welcome to Creative Paths, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about creative journeys. I'm your host, Sam Cole. I speak to creators from across the globe about their unique experiences and proudest moments, as well as the lessons they've learned along the way. Creative Paths is brought to you by Contact. It's the platform where creatives, models, photographers, and more find work and get paid, and where clients book the world's most diverse creative talent. Visit contact.xyz for more information. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Creative Paths. Today I'm joined by San Charlie Powell, the sole founder and CEO of Joro. Through Joro, San Charlie has set out on a mission to help individuals across the world manage their climate impact as intentionally and efficiently as they manage their money. Through the app, her team has been working hard to make a net zero lifestyle and connecting with a community of like-minded individuals accessible the world over. Though this is no easy feat, they've already made huge strides forward in the States with plans to widen their range in the near future. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So obviously on Creative Paths, we like to kind of dig into people's um, personal journeys within their career and, you know, try and share a little bit of that with our audience, um, kind of make sense of some careers we may otherwise not, you know, have understanding of. So I think it's, you know, quite a, a rare thing to be able to talk to someone that's started their own company and kind of get to grips with that directly. So it'd be great to learn about your journey, uh, launching a startup, kind of what the initial idea was, um, what Joro is and how that's grown as a result since the initial starting. Thank you for having me. But the idea for Joro came to me over many years because it came from a personal practice of trying to live more sustainably and slowly trying to figure out what that practice was going to be. I started tracking my carbon footprint in an Excel spreadsheet when I was in college uh, because I saw the documentary Food Inc. and it just changed my perspective on consumption. It made me realize that I wanted to be more intentional about my consumption. So I was tracking my footprint in my own life. And eventually, I actually, when I was in business school several years later, I had this idea that maybe this could be a company. Maybe it could be something that helped other people because others also want to live more sustainably but don't know where to start. And so I started thinking, what if there was a tool that helped people manage their emissions even down to zero? That would be amazing. If, if you could, you know, we have apps for managing our mental health, for our weight loss goals, for our fitness and steps, uh, but there's no app to help us manage our carbon. And what if I could manage carbon just like I manage any other metric in my life, like cost or calories or anything else? So I started thinking about the idea for Joro, which is an app that helps people track, reduce, and offset the emissions behind everything they buy. And ultimately, started the company after after I graduated from business school. Incredible. So what are the steps you have to take between kind of having that idea and transitioning that into something feasible you know what's what's that like i was lucky to be in graduate school when i had the idea so my first step was very much testing it with lots of people i I couldn't really leave school i wasn't planning on leaving school but i was interested in understanding if this was an actual problem i was solving if other people had the same problem if they would use a tool like this. So luckily, I was on a campus with lots of other people my age. Um, and so I went and t- started talking to people and asking them about, have you ever done made any choices for climate reasons? If so, what? What worked? What didn't? What motivates you? Stuff like that. So I did like at least 100 user interviews, I would say first when I had the idea. And then I started seeing patterns from what users were telling me and what they wanted. And I realized that an app 
could be a really useful tool because if people didn't want another physical device or another sure. physical tool, but your app, your phone is always with you. And especially your phone can capture a lot of information that would make the tracking easier. And so that was another big insight that came out of my user interviews was that the data collection needed to be automatic. People weren't going to manually enter like what they ate every single meal or what they bought every single day because sure. everything we buy has a carbon footprint. So I started looking for automated data feeds to, to build the app. And that was kind of where I stopped initially after the first few months because I was, my background was in management consulting and international development. I was living and working in Ethiopia before I went to grad school and I didn't know how to build a mobile app. I wasn't an engineer. So I was like, okay, sounds like people need a mobile app. They need some automated data collection. I don't know how to build that. So I just stopped. But instead, I went to go talk to a bunch of graduate students. I was at Harvard and there was a bunch of people across MIT and Harvard um, in the Boston area who were doing research on similar areas. So I just went and met them all. And I spent several months just learning from them. We formed a working group and did a bunch of research. Um, and so while I was in school, I ended up just learning a lot about how carbon emissions could be tracked and measured. Um, and it got to the point where by the end of school, I, we had enough information about how we would build it. And we had enough information about the market size and what people were interested in and our user research. And that was kind of when I decided to make the leap into starting the company. Okay. Wow. So it feels like it's quite like a collaborative process that kind of, you know, really got things kickstarted. So from that point, how did you then go about building the app? Did you build it yourself with the things that you learned? Or was that a case of like putting a team together? And One of the graduate students who I met was actually a PhD studying how we could use smartphone data to better estimate carbon emissions. So I learned a ton from her. (laughs) She became an advisor to me while she was doing her PhD. So she helped me set up the initial sort of um, calculation part of the Mm -hmm. app and Mm -hmm. pulled in other researchers to help. Um, But then to actually build the app, I worked with a contractor, a friend of a friend, actually my friend's brother, helped me build the first version of the app. We had earned a little bit of money from some business plan competitions. So I used that to pay him and his friend to build the first version of the app. I kind of became the designer. I started wireframing and testing and prototyping with users until we had something we knew we wanted to build. And then I worked with my my friend and to actually build it. And then we had a first prototype of the app after, I would say, about two or three months of, of testing and prototyping with users. And I started testing that with about 30 people in a closed beta um, before trying to raise money. Okay, nice. So how many steps does it have to go through? Because I mean, I only know about like betas and stuff from like video games and, you know, everything has to go through these rigorous tests. Like how many steps does that actually involve until, you know, you kind of get to the product that you have now? There's a lot of iteration. I can't tell you how many how many loops we've gone through of that process to where we are now. But I can say that there's a great book that I read early on that really helped me structure this process called Sprint by Jake Knapp. And they developed this sort of five-day design sprint process at Google. Um, and they apply it to startups. To When you're trying to solve any ambiguous problem where you don't know what the answer is, how do you build something really simple and test it with users within a week? And that's sort of the process we used in the early days as we went through two or three of those sprints uh, until we had something that we felt like, okay, this we have an idea of what the user flows would be and what it should look like. So then, then we started coding for two or three weeks and then we'd test for two or three weeks and build for two or three weeks. And we just did that for the first few months. And then even once we had that and we were testing with users for a few months, I went out to raise some money 
And by the time we started hiring people on the team, we've kind of, we have a similar approach where we, we still build and test in one to two week cycles. So kind of laid some foundations there that have stayed going forward. That's, uh, it's really cool that you're able to, you know, some of the things that are there in the early days are still strung up until now. Um, you mentioned about funding and I think it's something that our audience would love to know some more about because I feel like unless you're within a startup or you're, you know, working in investment yourself or, or whatnot, you kind of have a complete backseat to that and you don't really understand the, the ins and outs and some of the processes that go into that. So what was the kind of first step you took towards trying to get some funding? You know, who, who do you approach? Like, how does, how does that begin? <laughs> I'm like smiling because when I embarked on this process, I thought I was, I had done so much research and I was going to be the most prepared person. And obviously nothing went the way I expected. Mm-hmm. And I completely failed the first time. And I just had to learn from that. Coming out of business school, I was like, okay, I can do all these, this research. I can talk to people about how to fundraise, which I did. And I was really lucky to have entrepreneurs I could reach out to and ask for advice. So I, I took a sort of standard approach that I, I would still recommend other people take, which is do your research on what kinds of investors you think would be a good fit for the stage and the type of company you're building. And then go out and talk to them once you feel like you've got enough traction. So initially, I thought that was once I had done these 100 user interviews, I had done this wireframing and prototyping exercise where we knew what we would build if we were going to build it. And I decided maybe I'll go see if there's investors ready to invest now pre-seed round, angel round, before we have a beta out in the world. And also keep in mind, I'm a first-time founder, female founder, solo founder. So maybe this works for other people, but I think for someone like me, that didn't work. Sure. <laughs> I also, I put out, I, I probably talked to about 10 people over two weeks in my first set of investor discussions. And I had narrowed them down to people in clean tech and impact investing, given that I was building something in the climate space. And nine out of 10 said no. And one person said, maybe. And I've learned a couple things from that experience. I think one was that I was mostly talking to the wrong people, even though they were interested in the sector that I was building in, they were not familiar with the business model that I was working with, which was a direct to consumer mobile app. Most of them were familiar with B2B enterprise software. And that was a big hurdle for them to get over. And frankly, didn't make them the right investors for my business. But I focused too much on the sector and not enough on the business model when I was picking investors. Another mistake I made was that I was too early. I should have had something live with users tested before going to investors. Because once you have real users using your product, then you can actually um, speak with confidence about what people are doing when they interact with your idea. So I went and I went back and we actually built the, the first version of the product. And then we iterated for a few months uh, with about 30 testers. And then I went back and started fundraising again. And that one person who said maybe ended up investing that second time when I went around. Uh, one of my professors ended up putting in a small check. And those two checks sort of got me started. And then I went and actually booked a bunch of meetings on the West Coast. I was based in Boston at the time. And I realized a lot of the investors who had built successful mobile apps, like the Headspaces, Stravas of the world, uh, that I was aspiring to build a new category of, they were all on the West Coast. So I booked a, a trip to California. And by the end of that trip, had had raised our first round. Wow. So this is actually, funnily enough, something that I touched on with our last guest. We were talking about kind of how your personal geography can can impact you within your career and how much of a difference that can make. So would you advise anyone that kind of sees these 
opportunities that you know maybe someone that's in a, in another country or just you know on the other side of the country they're in to make that leap if you feel it's going to benefit the project that you're working on or you know if there's like-minded people around that you can kind of collaborate and communicate with i do think geography has such a big impact on on culture i grew up in boston and i love boston but it is a very academic culture and i got so much from that in the early days when i was trying to learn about what to build. But when it actually came to building, there's a lot of healthy skepticism in the environment. And there's also a lot of business to business expertise in building enterprise software. And so all of the people and resources and expertise are oriented towards a particular kind of cultural company. Um, There are, of course, exceptions. There's a consumer furniture company called Wayfair that came out of Boston. There's a running app called Runkeeper that came out of Boston. But those are exceptions. And the sort of talent and knowledge and expertise that's there isn't oriented towards fast-growing consumer apps. So I do think there's something to be said for the geography and its effect on culture and innovation. And now living in the Bay Area for my first time, it's been about two and a half years now since I moved to the West Coast. There really is a different mindset I encounter when I talk to investors and entrepreneurs of just like an opening to possibility, a lot less questioning. Sometimes that's a bad thing, (laughs) but often (laughs) it's really exciting. It's like, oh yeah, you want to, you think everyone is going to manage their carbon in five years? Yeah, yeah, that's possible. We could imagine that. And we've seen things come out of nothing before that's possible. But that said, I think with COVID now, I don't know that you have to actually move to the place. Mm -hmm. I think um, so many more people are willing to meet on Zoom um, or on video. And it's actually opened up the possibilities, I think, for entrepreneurs all around the world to like reach out to the people wherever they are that you think would understand what you're building. Some of our investors are in Sweden and the UK and in Singapore. Um, and they're building amazing things. And I think they bring amazing perspectives to what we're building. So I would say I do think like people and geography matter, but you can get over it now. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. So in that, I mean, is there is there anyone that you've kind of that you've worked with, even if that's just from like an investment standpoint, where there hasn't actually been any kind of physical face to face and you have been able to just create completely, you know, geographically opposed? Oh, definitely. So many. I mean, one example would be Rich Pearson, who's one of the founders of Headspace. He was based in LA when I first spoke with him. Now he's based in Portugal. And we've never met face to face, but we've spoken so many times on on Zoom. And he's been one of the people that I go to most regularly for advice and support. But we've only met each other online. And to be honest, we started hiring our full-time team in early 2020. So um, most people on the team, there's only a couple people on the team who had a couple months in person, but almost everyone has joined virtually. And the folk, we have about half our team in the Bay Area. So we meet a few times a week. But for everyone else who's across the US, we've only met a couple times in person. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I think for a lot of us, when we think of tech companies and stuff, you wouldn't ever imagine that it could fully work that way. Because I think in your mind, you kind of sit, you think of people kind of sat around together, like working around in an office kind of space. So it's it's really cool to see that that's something you've been able to do and kind of work around. But um, it'd also be interesting in, in that vein to to see if there were any other kind of challenges or hurdles you had to overcome as a result of, you know, starting in early 2020, at that point, hiring the full-time team. 
with any other challenges that came with that, obviously as a result of COVID and, you know, it's a, been a wild couple of years. It has been a pretty strange couple of years. <laughs> um, I mean, we were launching the app publicly in the App Store in April 2020. So it was a pretty strange time. Um, and yeah, early that year was when our first full-time teammates came on board. We had two people come on in mid-March whose first days were fully remote in that like very strange environment. And it was definitely hard and stressful. Luckily, we had raised this pre-seed round a few months before. In the end, I, I had reached out to one of the partners at Sequoia, Brian Schreier, who had written a piece I read online about how there should be more climate startups. So I just reached out to him cold. We ended up chatting and he ended up investing in, in the early round, which was amazing and, and really un- unexpected for me. And what was also amazing about that timing was that Sequoia was starting an early stage accelerator, their VC fund b- based in the Bay Area. And they were starting for the first time a cohort of really uh, early stage companies that were coming into the portfolio. So there were five of us early stage companies who went through a six week sort of boot camp together with the fund in August and September of 2019. Then I started looking for our full time team and hiring them in early 2020. Um, so I was lucky to have some sort of cohort support from other founders at my stage who I could talk to when shit was hitting the fan. <laughs> and I had helps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it really helped to have some some peers and to have some, frankly, advisors and investors around willing to help. Um, One of the best things I think Sequoia did for us when the pandemic hit was they gave all founders access to free coaching. And so I got to start working with a coach and having some of those resources really helped us. Like the whole world was uncertain and we weren't sure if like everything was going to change in a few months. But also I'm really grateful that we had a few key hires before the pandemic hit because going into that alone would have been completely different than going into it with a team. So we tried to build on the momentum of getting the app out there into the world and getting a ton of user feedback. And then we started our our seed round raise shortly afterwards. Um, And in late 2020, raised our seed, which Sequoia led. And then we were able to bring in a bunch of these angels like Rich and other folks like James Park from Fitbit and um, Sebastian, who's one of the founders of Candy Crush. So we brought in some sort of key uh, angel investors who could act, act as mentors and advisors for us, uh, which was really helpful. Feels like in your experience, mentors and advisors, uh, kind of, you know, coaches is something that's been really important. Is it something that you'd recommend any kind of creative or somebody trying to you know build their own startup um for example would would look into and you know just try and seek out if they don't have those already doing anything new alone is so difficult and when you're trying to build something from nothing or build something that's never existed before whether that's a cre- something new and creative like art or if it's a startup or a company is just like an impossible task and anything you can learn and support from others i think um, makes it so much easier. It's so good to know that other people have walked that path before. And even when it was hard, they somehow made it through and to understand how they did that. So yeah, I think that the different mentors and advisors and coaches in my life have been, you know, instrumental in being able to build Joro. There's so many moments when you're like, what am I doing? Is this even possible? Does anyone care? Like did you know, anyone use this and having folks who know the journey and who can empathize are really helpful. I especially think for founders who are raising money early, founders are some of the best people to raise from 
because they will empathize with you and they'll also be able to give you real practical advice. As a solo founder, that's probably even more so relevant. And is that something you've kind of had to, you've had to seek out even more as a result of being a solo founder, do you think? I do think I've sought that out more as a solo founder because there's only so many times I can talk to my partner or my parents about my problems before <laughs> they get annoyed at me. Um, Classic. <laughs> so you, you need someone to talk to uh, who will understand and empathize. I think it's probably just as useful for founders or founding team, like when there's multiple founders to reach out to mentors and advisors, but it might not be as natural because you also want to share everything with the person that you're starting the company with. Absolutely. But I think I was, that's maybe a lucky thing of being a solo founder is you have to branch out and ask for support. And it, it really helped me. Kind of backed into a corner, fight or flight. Again, you know, as, like I said earlier, it's not all the time that you get to speak to someone that's gone on this, started out this journey by themselves and, you know, has been in, successful in doing so. I'm wondering what one thing that you've learned throughout this journey that you didn't really expect when you started out. So obviously you, you mentioned earlier the failures that you face, you know, is there anything, any of those that just really threw you off and you were like, whoa, okay, this, this wasn't in the game plan. I do think that, well, I've learned so much from starting this company. And that was one of the things that I was also really intentional about when I got started. And I was lucky to have this early professor who really shaped my mindset when I was starting the company, that if you're going to go start something new, that is there's no guarantee of success. In fact, the likelihood is that you're probably going to fail. Then you better have a plan for your own personal growth throughout the process. And so you, it's kind of different from when most people go start a job and they expect to succeed, right? Because you're like starting a company, you're, you're joining a company in a job where the expectation is that you're going to do a good job or it's going to be a good fit for you. When, when you're starting a company or something creative, kind of the expectation is that it might not work. When you can go into it with that mindset, it's more important that you set up opportunities for learning. Um, so I wanted to make sure that even if the company fails, that if I do this for a few years, I'll somehow come out richer or stronger or more skilled or happier than I was before. And so for me, I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the last few years is the importance of listening and listening to my users especially. And that's taken me through a lot of really hard times. Like for instance, when all those first investors said no, the thing that kept me going was talking to a bunch of users and re-listening to interviews and regrounding in the problem I was trying to solve and for whom. And that really motivated me that, okay, even if I can build this for these hundred people, that will be valuable. I will have built something valuable if I can serve these people's needs. So that listening to our user and then also listening to my team, I think, being a solo founder, I really rely on my team in a big way to help guide the strategy and what we're going to build probably more than on at any other kind of company. And everyone on the team has good ideas. There's, I have no special intuition because I decided to found this company. And I think that can help companies move forward or people move forward when they feel like they don't have they don't know what's next. Um, so to me, that's like one of the, my biggest takeaways is really learning to listen. I totally, totally agree with you there. I think it'd be nice for us to continue looking at kind of obviously why, why the users are on the platform and what the purpose is more so than, than the business side of things and the tech side of things. 
So it'd be good to know from your perspective what you think we could all start doing personally to make a make an impact on the climate crisis and try and you know do our part. I think it's really important, and the real reason that I started this company is for everyone to realize that they do have a role that we can play in addressing the climate crisis. I like I think many people for a while knew that the climate crisis was happening and knew it mattered, but wasn't sure what I personally could do about it. It's very big and very overwhelming. And we clearly need sweeping policy change. We clearly need companies to behave differently. And I'm just one person. So what am I supposed to do? But with any big systemic problem, change has always started bottom up. You know, Whether it's civil rights, or a change to marriage equality, or whatever it is, it started from the bottom up. And companies and governments don't just magically make decisions because it's in the best interest of humanity. They make choices (laughs) based on their customers and their citizens demanding it. Um, So the first thing that I say to people is like, you do have power. It doesn't mean it's your fault, but you do have power to make a difference. And especially if we start looking at the resources within our control, think about what money you spend and what money you influence and think about your labor, your capital as a resource. And think about the people you influence as well, your community, your family, your company, the people you interact with. Um, And of course, if you live in a democracy, then your ability to vote is really important and to demonstrate as well. So I would say, like, think about the resources within your control and then think about what's important to you. Like for me, I started on my climate journey through plant-based eating. I was anyways interested in plant-based eating. It's just sort of like a healthier way to live. And I wasn't ready to go fully vegan, but I did want to try a more vegetarian diet. So I started cutting down my meat consumption from 12 meals a week to two meals a week. And I had an impact like taking half a car off the road every year And from a carbon perspective. I also saved money and I felt better. So there's so many co-benefits to a lot of these decisions. I think people don't realize there's five areas of our carbon footprint that we directly influence and households, our household consumption influences 65% of global emissions. Um, And those five categories are our homes and how we power our homes, how we travel, what we buy, what we eat, and then our finances. And across those five areas, depending on what's most important to you or where you feel like you can make a change first, you can probably take a really impactful action uh, that, that would make a difference if more than just you did it. I think that breakdown makes it feel a lot more digestible because, you know, a, a word you mentioned a lot there was control. And I think for me personally, anyway, when we look at kind of, you know, civil rights and things like that, it's very grounded in humanity itself, you know, like society. Whereas when we're looking at the environment, it always can, you know, it feels a bit bigger than the narcissist. Like, well, the world's huge. Um, what, what are we going to do kind of things? I think that breakdown is, is super useful to kind of help people see these, these different pillars of how, how they can make, you know, small changes. But at the same time, I think a lot of people face like climate anxiety. Like I said, you know, it feels like such a big overwhelming thing. And you, you touched on that. So how would you kind of advise people to, to work around that and try and alleviate that a bit so they can kind of work towards, um, reducing their own carbon footprint and you know just having a bigger impact in maybe smaller ways i think the first step is just being talking about it and recognizing it a lot of times we deal with climate anxiety alone and it goes hand in hand with climate silence Uh, we we don't want to talk about it because it's scary and stressful and we're we don't want to burden other people with the worry about it 
But uh, there's this amazing new research that came out of Yale just a couple months ago that shows that, at least in the U.S. now, one in three Americans considers themselves climate alarmed. That means they're so concerned about the climate crisis that it's like actually causing anxiety on a daily or weekly basis. And that's the most that's ever been climate alarmed. And I, I mean, just knowing that you're not alone, acknowledging it. And one of the biggest climate actions we can take is just talking about climate more, just like making it normal that, yes, we all care. Yes, we want to do something and just talking about it. And then I think for me, finding actionable things that are achievable and that would actually make a difference if everyone did them are great places to start by in really making progress on on climate anxiety. So for instance, another thing people don't realize is that where you bank makes a big difference. There's 12 banks in the world that fund the majority of fossil fuels. And just shifting your money away from one of those banks could be one big way that you signal that you're you're ready for a fossil fuel free economy. For instance, like JP Morgan Chase, if you have a Chase card or bank account, is the biggest funder of fossil fuels by far. So there's there's a lot of things you can do that are really achievable and really impactful if we would do them. Wow. There's a lot of things you bring up that I think people like myself are just so unaware of. And it feels like they, I mean, like you said, they are so manageable. It's not as if you have to, you know, do something kind of grandiose and to kind of even find this information out, I guess. It's all, it feels like it's all available if you know where to look. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to make it a lot easier in the app now. So in the app, you can connect your credit or debit cards and you can see the carbon impact behind every purchase. So we do those calculations for you. So you can say like $10 on at the coffee shop or $50 at the gas pump and how much carbon came from those purchases. And we're trying to get more accurate with those two. Some categories we might ask you for a little bit of extra information if if we don't have it. Yeah. And then you can actually offset everything you buy and go net zero right away, which was a really interesting thing we discovered last year that our most committed users really wanted some way to get to net zero already uh, because we're hearing about net zero targets for 2050 and people want to go net zero today. They don't want to wait for 2050. So we made that really easy by sourcing carbon offset projects around the world that reduce and remove carbon like forestry projects or agriculture projects or even high tech technology projects that capture carbon and store it permanently. And so you can actually subscribe to offset everything you buy right away. That costs about $30 a month for the average American. And we're launching in Canada uh, in mid-February and hopefully to the UK in a few months. Oh, great. So it's coming soon. And then you can also get tips and guides for reducing carbon, things like greening your bank. There's guides for in the app. So do you think kind of over the past two years, it, I mean, it'd be interesting to know if, if like your data kind of reflects this, that people have used the, the time they've had and kind of just, I don't know, the awareness we've kind of had of the, the world around us to take that time, you know, in, in lockdowns and such to, to do more research, be more aware, be, you know, just more concerned, like you said, alarmed and, and so on. Definitely. We are seeing a big change in customer interest in the product and also in activity once people get on the app. So we just did our 2021 impact report, our year in review, and we found that the average person on the app reduced their emissions by about 21% uh, over the course of the year, which is wow. amazing. Okay. Yeah. Really, really significant. And most of that, that was about half from behavior change from spending less or spending differently. 
Um, for instance, buying more secondhand, uh, we had people fly less. We had people carpool more to work or work from home, which also saved a lot of emissions and eat more plant-based meals. And then about half from offsets where people were paying for emissions reduction around the world from these meaningful projects that we've vetted. And by doing so, actually, on average, our users are saving money, which is also a pretty amazing. Always a bonus, right? <laughs> I guess a question that I have in, in relation to that now, as we're kind of starting to see a lot more open up, you know, for example, in the, in the UK, a lot, a lot of things are open now. The way that we travel is, feels like it's kind of going back to normal and so on. Do you think these trends that you've noticed in the data are, are going to continue or do you think there, there may be a kind of fluctuation as there's a so-and-so return to normal? There's certainly been some increase in emissions already in the last year um, after the original 2020 lockdown. But I really hope that a lot of these trends are here to stay. Like we're building our team fully distributed and people are, are welcome to work from home, uh, which I never imagined we would do. Like you said, like you said earlier, I imagined us all working in one room together. Um, but now we've adjusted to this more distributed style of working. And similarly flying, I mean, I was amazed to see that France is moving to ban short haul flights because of carbon emissions if there is a train alternative. Um, wow. So if, there, if there's a train, they're saying you have to, have to take the train. And that was mostly because of a bunch of protests across Europe started by Greta Thunberg um, for the fly less movement. Um, so I think some of these changes, when you, they start with people, but then when you start having enough people, you have collective momentum, then they lead to systemic change. And so I think those things are are changing. Wow, that's another thing I wasn't aware of. That's that's great. Again, it goes to show that things are from the from the ground up. I think um, kind of a nice a nice place for us to kind of tie things together would just be some things within within your industry that you're kind of particularly looking forward to over the course of the next few months or over the next year that you think people can kind of get involved in in a in a bigger way to kind of help champion some of this change. Well. Certainly think people could download the app and (laughs) (laughs) start connecting with people. If you're worried about climate change, there's an app for that. Hopefully soon in Canada and the UK. And also start connecting with people in local groups. That's something I live in Oakland, California, and there's a lot of local climate groups that I've just started getting on the listservs of, emailing, finding out when they're doing events. There have been some climate protests I've been able to participate in locally, which have been really fun and just empowering to see lots of people coming together. There's also Earth Day comes up in April. Um, and there's always going to be exciting events that happen in your area around Earth Day. Um, and I think more generally, there's just a big push for countries to and companies to start making real commitments and real action towards reaching net zero by 2050. And I think being a discerning consumer and being vocal about that is something we could do every day. If you see a company that's planting a tree for every shirt you buy, maybe ask, is that going to be net positive? For climate? <laughs> yeah. You know, we, uh, there's some great tools. We, I personally use good on you sometimes when I'm trying to look for new clothing uh, options to figure out where there's sustainable options or the most sustainable option is always thrifting. So just being a sustainable consumer, asking questions about whether something is real 
um, or not. And then also, I feel like the biggest thing we need in climate is just like a yes and attitude (laughs) of like, yes, you can do that. And that's great. And I will also do this. And all of our climate action doesn't have to be the same. uh, But it can all be really valuable. Oh, perfect. That is that is amazing. I really appreciate the way that you've broken down a lot of these things. And I think even for myself now, it's a lot clearer how we can play a small part, but in a big way and as a collective. And I think that's really, really useful. And tying that all into your business and your journey as well has been amazing to listen to. So thank you so much. Thanks. I hope this is helpful to anyone listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creative Paths. For more information about this episode, check out the description or visit contact.xyz forward slash creative hyphen paths. I'll be back soon for more unfiltered conversations about creative journeys. Creative Paths is brought to you by Contact, the platform where creatives, models, photographers, and more find work and get paid, and where clients book the world's most diverse creative talent. Visit contact.xyz for more information.